Support for this program comes from Tiger Lily Communications, public relations, content creation, publicity, and marketing for creatives. We make you look even better. Find out more at T-I-G-E-R-L-I-L-Y communications.com. and welcome to Speak On It, the podcast where the creatives tell their stories about what they do and how they do it. I'm Felicia Hodges, and today I'm here with creative Ryan Robinson. Born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, he discovered drawing at an early age and later learned to express his creativity through music, playing drums on several recordings. The proud father of two recently published Crossroads, One Black Man's Journey Through Race, Religion, and Politics, which is his first book. It has been described as insightful reflections laced with personal, intimate anecdotes to help the reader navigate through difficult and controversial issues. Welcome, Ryan, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute honor. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, um, yeah, raised raised right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm still here. Um, I've, I've been here all my life. Very for the most part, quiet, sheltered environment that I was raised in. Being an artistic, I can't say it really presented problems, but I was sort of a misfit, right? Because other people in my family weren't. So when other people were doing whatever they were doing, I was like nestled in a corner somewhere drawing, right? Or just, you know, keeping to myself. So it was it was a really, uh, really quiet, you know, withdrawn existence for me for uh, actually a very long time because I was like, that was my outlet. I, I just, I started to draw. My mother would probably know better than I could because it's as far back as I can remember. Like, I don't remember when I just made a conscious decision. This is something that I, I like to do, right? I, I just fell into it. And I always had sheets of paper and pencils and crayons with me, right? All the time. And at some point, I'm not sure when this was either, but I discovered that I like to make sounds with my voice, right? I was really fascinated with with just different sounds in general. It wasn't any particular thing. And I discovered that the drum kit made a lot of different sounds, right? High pitch, low pitch, sustain, resonant, you know, all these different tones and textures. And I started to mimic those sounds with my mouth. And it occurred to me one day, well, I could just duplicate all these sounds if I actually learned how to play, <laughs> right? So it wasn't the, it wasn't, I wasn't drawn necessarily to the motions of drumming as much as it was the the sounds that were being produced. So for me, the motions, the technique was a means to an end to just produce all these wonderful sounds. Um, so that's how I that's how I got into drumming. I was what I would consider a late bloomer um, because I was about 16 and a half, 17 years old. Prior to that, they weren't accessible. 
my parents were not going to buy them for me. So I had to buy them for myself. Actually, what ended up happening was the church that I was attending at the time, the resident drummer moved out of state, which left a vacancy for the drums. And I got up, you know, what I would do is I would get up behind the drums after service, like a lot of kids. I mean, it's so typical of church culture. After service, I would get up behind the drums and just make noise, you know, not really knowing what I'm doing. At some point, the music director said to me, well, we need to get you up here playing more so so that we can work on your time. And I had no idea what that meant. Like work on my time? Like what? What? <laughs> like my watch works just fine. What are you talking about? That was the beginning of me working out the drumming, like from the from the very inception, it was just drilled into my head over and over again. You know, you got to keep the time, you got to keep the time, you got to keep the groove, you got to, you know, so that was actually how I learned how to play. There was no formal instruct. I couldn't afford it, <laughs> right? My parents were not paying for it. I didn't have a job. I learned how to play drums in church. I know you play live frequently, or you did. You're in a few bands, and you do a bunch of different stuff. How has COVID upended all that? It's It's been surreal, actually. Almost indescribable, because it was so much. I went from so much to nothing, literally overnight. I was very active pre-pandemic, and it all shut down. So making the mental and the emotional adjustment (laughs) is, it's a constant challenge, right? So it's not one of those things where you determine one day, okay, I'm going to be fine with this. I'm going to push forward. I'm just going to dig in and just do what I need to do, whatever it takes, whatever it looks like. That's what I'm going to do. Well, that's fine on Thursday, right? Saturday comes a whole different set of emotions that have to be dealt with kind of all over again. There's been spurts of like really homing in on the drumming and just, you know, cultivating it like I've always done over the years. Like, okay, whatever is going on, good or bad, whatever it is, I'm going to be very purposeful, very intentional about cultivating this gifting. So there had been spurts of that. And then there have been spurts of why bother? <laughs> like what's, what's, what's the point? What's the use? It appears as though there isn't any really, I mean, light at the end of the tunnel for lack of a better description. Like what, what is this going to amount to? I'm not one to function well as a pessimist, it just doesn't work well for me. Like I'm negative for five minutes and that's like four minutes too long. So I have to find ways to quickly move past that and just shake it off and just move forward in spite of how it looks. So if it looks dark and dim and and dismal, that's just how it looks. Like you still have to move forward. This is still what 
you need to do for yourself. So if you're not on stage in the next few weeks or the next few months, and you're not on stage, would you prefer for it to be that way? Absolutely not. But that doesn't negate the fact that this is still something that you really enjoy doing. This is your passion, period. You feel this in your bones. You know that if you're not doing this, something's wrong. It's as if something is disjointed. Physically, you're able to detect that, right? Like, ooh, like my wrist is not working properly. I got a kink in my neck. That's how it feels when, when I'm not drumming when I'm not involved in music in some form or fashion. It doesn't have to be in a large public setting. It just has to be, right? At the end of the day, it just has to be. So if it's in my bedroom, playing on bongos or a cajon, that's what it's gonna be, right? If it's in my rehearsal studio, working out some chops, that's what it is. It's my responsibility to just fully embrace the moment for what it is because that is my passion. Currently, I'm just practicing, uh, just practicing on my own. I'm slowly working on an album with a colleague of mine. It's really slowly because to produce an album on your own, right? <laughs> like without a budget is, it's not musically challenging, it's financially challenging. We're just taking it, you know, one step at a time. As far as other live performances, they're, they're in very short spurts. So one thing here, you know, maybe another thing in another month or so, that's about the extent of it. So when I say I'm being purposeful about cultivating the gifting, what that looks like is I really need to put myself in a place where I'm being challenged right? Because I've been playing for a long time and it's very easy for me to just fall into a, a rut of just complacency and like, ah, oh, I can do this. Let me just go ahead. Like I have to move away from that. And like, you got to push, man, <laughs> right? You got to push. You got to, you know, those things that I normally wouldn't have to play in most of the settings that I'm in because I don't really play a lot of challenging music. I have to challenge myself, right, to, to continue to grow and to develop. Born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, how did growing up and living there influence your creativity? That's a great question. And it's, it's really, what's really interesting about that is that because my upbringing was so quiet and so withdrawn, I was, I was very far removed from a lot of the creativity um, that was being produced in the area. Since there wasn't, there wasn't any track into, you know, these inner circles, right, of, of creatives and artists, I just, I had no idea what I was actually, or what I could have been exposed to. So I actually grew up with Larry Graham from Graham Central Station, from Sly and the Family Stone. I grew up with his sons. Like we grew up together, you know, it wasn't, you know, oh, this person, no, we actually attended the same classes the whole bit as a young child and not being exposed to those things. Like you're just, you're just ignorant, right? Just unaware. So I didn't 
really discover the significance and the depth of that until I was much, much older, really. I mean, we were familiar, we were aware, but we just, we had no idea. Like, this guy is a funk legend. He's a legend. I mean, there's no way to overstate that. That didn't really register probably until I actually started to play music myself. And then I made the connection. I'm like, okay, Larry Graham, like the pioneer of slap bass. Wait a minute. Like that's, that's his offspring. It's actually, it's a, it's a very tight knit community. So what that looks like is the degree of separation is very short. I also went to school with Sheila E's cousins. So, I mean, it's just crazy because I had no idea who the Escobedo family was. Those things really didn't have an effect on me personally until years later, until I actually started to play. And I thought, oh my, oh my goodness, like these people are legendary and they are literally in my backyard. Sly and the Family Stone, uh, Santana, Tower of Power. Did you reach uh, out to them at any point once your realization kicked in? You know, I never did. By the time it, it actually dawned on me, I realized just how great they were. And what that meant for me as a musician was you really got a lot of work to do. That's not something accessible for you right now in terms of your musicianship. Stay in the shed, you know, get your chops up, you know, and then if and when that opportunity comes, you'll, you'll be ready. We'll be back with more from musician and author Ryan Robinson in just a few. Stay with us. The Groove Pavement Podcast, talk show, and movie review where we break down the black exploitation era, the cinematic genre, the exploitation of the black culture, and experience through film and media. We'll also dive into the cast, the subgenres, the TV shows, and the music. Outside of the films, we'll view some critical signs of the time and what these stories meant then and now, from entertainment to society to economics. The Groove Pavement. Catch a new episode each week on Hutsey.tv and Facebook. Welcome back to more of our conversation with creative Ryan Robinson. He recently wrote a book called Crossroads, One Black Man's Journey Through Race, Religion, and Politics. And he tells us how it all came together. I wasn't originally intending to write a book. That it just, that it wasn't something that, you know, I just had an epiphany one day. Hey, maybe you should write a book. I I had went through this period of self-reflection and I thought it helpful to just express a lot of these thoughts that I had because it was a lot, right? And it got to be where it was just, it was building up. So I I began to ask myself like these really pointed questions. Like, what does it really mean for you to be black? I never asked myself that. I, I didn't really understand like the depths of that in a widespread sense, in a sociological sense. Like, what does it really, what does it mean to you to be a black man, to be a black Christian man, 
living in America? What does that look like? And so the journey began. So I started to write these things out. And the more I thought about it and the more I wrote, I thought this could actually become a book. Originally what I thought it would just be something that I would kind of just journal for myself, like for my own kind of self-therapy, right? <laughs> kind of just, you know, self-discovery. There came a point where it became clear to me that my story could help others. It was a unique story, but not uncommon, if that makes sense. I started to I started to write with those things in mind. I thought I could really inspire some people who've gone through similar experiences being Black. And we understand that Black people are not a monolith, right? We're not all the same, except that there are shared experiences. So I, so I started to write about uh, being a little church boy and submitting myself to church authority, which was very easy for me to do because of the way that I had been raised. I had been raised to just do as you're told, no questions asked. It was just a very strict, very rigid, very restrictive upbringing, which I felt in my naivete was acceptable. Like, this is fine. This is, this is how it should be. So then when I started to attend church, it was, it was a very seamless transition, my home life to my church life. They just, they mirrored one another. It was pretty much the same thing. I had been more indoctrinated than I had been taught biblical truths. Oftentimes there's a very big difference. There's a big difference, right? So you're taught when you come to church, this is what is expected of you. And even in your lifestyle, like this is what, this is, what is expected of you. Jesus and the Bible is a part of it, <laughs> but it's not the, the, the central theme of it all. A lot of what I had experienced in church was political because it was the way that those particular churches were governed. I mean, there were policies that were enacted and put in place just like secular government. I don't really like that word secular, but for lack of a better, very, very similar. And historically very much influenced by conventional government and policy. Like it was really intertwined. And when I realized that I thought, okay, what's really going on? Like, I, I'm not really seeing, if I was being truthful with myself, like I'm not seeing the abundant life that Jesus spoke about. I'm not experiencing the love your neighbor as yourself. That love was conditional. So, and what that means, what that looks like is love your neighbor if your neighbor agrees with you. That was never explicitly stated, but it was always implied in a lot of different ways. I saw that played out in real time in my, in my church life. 
which is depicted in the book. I mean, there was an incident that just really, it was very impactful because it saddened me so much in a, just in a really deep, <laughs> visceral place. I thought, why is this happening, right? Like, what are we doing? Is this really representative and reflective of the love of God? Most of my church experiences, not all, but several of them were just, it was very, it was very restrictive. And I know that a lot of people have had similar experiences. So I wanted to speak to those to help encourage and inspire those people to look past some of those issues and, and move forward. I'm moving forward, <laughs> but I, I felt it was really important to bring some of those issues to the fore and just air them out. Let's just get it all out in the open um, in the form of a book. I felt like for me was a was just the most viable way to go about it. With that being said, and all the events that have happened in the past year, including a global pandemic and movements designed to bring awareness to some serious, serious social issues and situations around us, I'll just say it's an interesting an interesting time to be Black in America. How have the events of late shaped your book? Right in the middle, like in the middle of me writing the book, we had Ahmaud Aubrey, and then we had George Floyd. And then sometime thereafter, we had Breonna Taylor. And I had to stop writing. It was too upsetting. Words failed me at that point, like there's, there's, I, I'm really not even in the space to try and articulate any real thought because I was just so emotionally traumatized and distraught. I'm like, here we are again. I was very angry and just generally on edge. Any little thing would set me off. I can't say that that was unfamiliar because I'd been there before because we've seen these scenarios played out so many times, so many times. So I'm like really trying to figure out, okay, what's really going on? Like actually putting the work in and, and looking at, you know, these systems, <laughs> right? And these structures that are set in place that have been designed to be detrimental to the existence of Black people. So seeing those things for what they are brought a level of awareness, but it also brought this, uh, this indignation. I felt that way most of the time. If, if I'm being truthful, I feel that way most of the time because I'm under attack <laughs> politically, socially, sociologically. There's this peering over your shoulder. It's, it's not literal but it's certainly psychological that's that was probably magnified during that during that time period right so i had to step away i had a couple of conversations with my children to understand how they were feeling the difference in generations is very noteworthy in that they're living out trauma in real time. 
most things that I was exposed to was by way of reading. Emmett Till happened in 1955 or whatever. My 26 and almost 22 year old, they're much blacker than I was at their age, right? Because I was, you know, I was that conforming, compliant, passive, docile, that, that was me, like, you know, so this book was me saying no more. It sounds like such an amazing um, dive, you know, uh, the read itself. Would you be able to read a passage or anything from your book? So chapter 10 is titled Black Lives Matter, question mark, right? Not a, not a statement, an in, inquiry, in right? So it says the day of Rodney King's brutal beating began as one so serene and uneventful. I was living with my mother after losing my job and considering what was next for me. The serenity was interrupted by the video flashing across the television. I watched in complete horror as the helpless man attempted to raise himself off the ground only to be beaten back down like an animal. When my awe subsided, I walked away from the TV in a zombie-like state. All I could do was walk. So I walked through my neighborhood crying I felt helpless and hopeless. I was two years younger than King. He was unarmed and guilty of a crime millions of people do every day, speeding. So the image of his beating replayed over and over in my mind. I couldn't help but think about all the times I drove well past the speed limit myself. Coupled with the times I was stopped by the police for no apparent reason at all. Before that time, I had never been so aware of my humanity. What was clear to me at that moment was that I didn't have to do anything at all. I only needed to be. And whatever police officer felt threatened by my presence, he or she could bring swift, harsh judgment to my existence. That day I began to walk in fear, knowing that any day could bring capital punishment or worse, death. No amount of compliance or obedience would prevent me from the inevitable fate deemed rational and appropriate by an officer of the law. My own life expectancy had been redefined to mean that I might, I might never live to see my grandchildren. I might never see old age at all. It was an unsettling and eerie feeling to realize that with all my parents had done to raise me to be polite and well-mannered, I was just as susceptible to police violence as a drug dealer from the hood. Where can people interested in finding out more about the book or, or reading it? How can they find it? They can find it on Amazon. If you type in Crossroads, my name, R-I-A-N, Robinson, it, it will pop up. Again, the title is Crossroads, One Black Man's Journey Through Race, Religion, and Politics. But wait, there's more. The immediate 2021 goal was to just push and promote this book as far out as I can, you know, get into as many hands, as many homes as I possibly can before I start to edit the next book, because there's there's another book on deck. Where can people find you to hear more about you or your music? Um, I am on Instagram, kicksnarehat24 underscore. And I'm on Facebook, Ryan Robinson. Once again, it's R-I-A-N Robinson. Those are the best ways to find me. 
That's our episode. You can follow Speak On It on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Vimeo, or you can email us at tigerlilycommunications at mail, just mail, dot com to let us know what you think. By the way, the original music you hear is called Please Irene by Lynn Riley and the World Mix. We know you're missing live music these days just as much as we are, so head on over to their YouTube channel to check out some of their past performances. Hope to catch you again soon. Stay safe out there.